Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43. I have just a few verses on the insert. We will be looking at a section, a large section, starting at verse 8 of chapter 43 into the first few verses of chapter 44. I believe that's about page 602 or 603 in your pew Bible. You definitely need to have your Bible open, your electronic version, whatever it is you have, in order to follow through as I move uh, through this passage with you. This has been a, a challenging study for me. The hardest thing I've ever had to preach is this book of Isaiah. It's the most rewarding so far, but it, is, it has been ch- a challenge. I start Monday morning, and I'm going the whole week, and you're probably thinking, well, it should be a lot better than that if you started Monday. And it works. I, I agree, it probably should. But it's just been a challenge to, to try to be sure that um, I am true to what the original message is. That's, that's the right way to interpret Scripture. What was the message? Um, expositional preaching is simply saying what the Bible says. Now, at the same uh, time, there is always across-the-generations connection for us when we discover what things are revealed about God. In this passage in particular, the middle section of Isaiah, it's forecasting something that wouldn't happen for over 100 years in Isaiah's time. So he's giving words of comfort, words of deliverance, words of redemption for a people who have not yet fallen under Babylon. He's looking ahead to when they will, so it would be a comfort to them then, But it also had to be a comfort to a faithful remnant when they were first receiving it. So it has immediate application. It has future application, but short future. And distant application to us. And in this prophecy, there is also yet unfulfilled an ultimate sense of God's consummation of his kingdom. So there are multiple levels or layers to any prophet. And Isaiah, I think, is the most complex of all the prophets. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the book... He's talking about the servant. Now, ultimately, he's displaying Jesus, the servant, who makes up for all the shortcomings of us, his servants. Israel called his servant. They failed him. And so that sets up appreciation for the servant, Jesus, to come. So in this section, there's a going back and forth between, I will deliver you, he says to his people. I will redeem you. I have done this thinking of the future consummation of this in Christ. But there will be immediate discipline that happens. I've not stopped loving you. I will not fail you. Listen to my word. Repent. I will keep you. And it keeps going like this. I mean, that's so true of our lives even as we think about it. He doesn't stop loving us when we sin, but he brings discipline because he loves us. And this cycle happens, it has always happened in the life of God's people. The beauty of our positioning is we have the finished work of Christ to look back through to these prophecies, to see how they were fulfilled in him and how this truth that's laid out here is given to us in fullness through Christ. And yet it gives us an expectation for what is still to come. It's a beautiful, deep prophecy, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. In Isaiah 43, the first few verses, we are told by our God to fear not because he has redeemed us. He's called us by his name. And it even reminds us that when you pass through waters, he's not going to let us be overwhelmed by those waters. When we pass through the fire, he will not let us be burnt. What great promises to a people who are beleaguered with doubt, who are struggling with anxiety, or looking around and they're tempted by what the world has to offer to trust it, to put their stock in it. And he's reminding them of who he is. Now, after giving those beautiful promises, some of which we read in the opening verses of our call to worship, uh, now he gives the bedrock for it. 
um, the proof for why these things will come to pass and speaks something of himself and his nature that will give us assurance. Now, hear God's holy word. This is his holy word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means it's inerrant. We can trust it completely in that it's infallible, in that it is also authoritative because it comes from God and it's completely sufficient. So hear that, God's word. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so full of talk and of promises. We make commitments that we have trouble keeping. We make declarations that we find difficult to live up to. Many times we mean well. We want to do what we say, but we lack the ability to carry it through. But Lord, you are not like this. I think we doubt you often, O Lord, because we think you're like us. But you're not. You keep your word. You are unstoppable. We give you praise for your trustworthiness, for your perfect faithfulness, your clear plan and purpose. Indeed, your invincible power. Lord, edify your people. Encourage your people. Build us up by your word today, for your word is truth. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Today I want to address an attribute of God, or part of an attribute of God, that comes forward from this passage. Now, The chapters we are in, all the way to chapter 55, it's conceivable, if I kept with the big idea, we could just almost hear the same sermon every week. But instead, I want to draw sub-themes from the particular passage we're looking at, keeping in mind the big picture, but then accenting what it says in that sub-theme, because it's so helpful. There's so much to know about our God. He reveals so much, yet there's even more that we'll only know in eternity. But here there is something of what is called the invincibility of God that we discover. By invincibility, I'm not talking about sovereignty. It falls under the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But something he declares about himself, I believe when properly understood, will be of great benefit to you, his people. Now I want to say, to you, his people. Uh, The Puritans were excellent at making sure when they began to lay out a study to ask the question or challenge the people who are under the study, confirm your interest in Christ first. In other words, this is a message that is for the child of God by faith in Christ in his finished work. Um, If you're in that category, then this is for you. In fact, the words of comfort, the words of promise from God are to his people who are rightly related to him through Christ. And so if you've confirmed your interest in Christ, this will be an encouragement to you to discover something more of your God, maybe something you have not thought of, at least not in fullness. Invincible. What does that word mean? It's usually associated with something military like an invincible army or invincible general. 
For me, I remember the first time I thought of the concept very vividly. I was in eighth grade. Your world's smaller in eighth grade, but it seemed pretty big to me. And there was a person who came to mind every time I thought of invincibility, and it was always connected to gym class. I mean, gym class is so soft now. I mean, like run around cones, jump rope. Oh, did you bump Susie? Oh, no, don't. It's terrible. It's not even, should be called gym class anymore. When I was in school in the 80s, we played dodgeball. Some of you remember when I was a youth pastor when I first came here. Remember what I encouraged everybody? Who can say it? Come on, headshots. I mean, that's what we were looking for in dodgeball when I was, I know, I know, let's get tough for just at least the next 20 minutes and think about how fun dodgeball is when you have the red rubber ball that has texture on it and leaves a mark. That's the kind of game that I think we should bring back. I mean, it's a metaphor for life. Two teams on either side, you're trying to dodge the ball all the time. If you're not good enough, you're going to get hit. Uh, But you could catch it and get the other person out. Well, I remember uh, in eighth grade knowing we were in the dodgeball unit, and so there's six weeks of dodgeball twice a week. Now, it was good or bad depending on something in particular. There was this kid. His name was The Bear. We called him T-Bear. I, to this day, do not know his real name. I've tried to do Facebook searches. I've asked all my friends. He just disappeared mysteriously after ninth grade. Now, he was in eighth grade, but he was supposed to be in tenth grade, that's for sure. He had almost a full beard, and he was only 15. Um, He was well over 200 pounds. He wore an old Grand Island recreation hat that had stains on it backwards. You're not supposed to wear hats in school, but no one, no teacher would dare tell him he couldn't. And so there was T-Bear. You hoped you were on his team. I mean, that was the only sense of relief you ever got when you got in line and it was one, two, one, two, one, two, and you're looking to see, I hope, if I'm a two, I hope T-Bear is a two. Or you jockey for position while the the teacher was uh, separating the class to make sure that you were on his team. Because if you were on his team, you're going to win. And you're going to win, you're going to destroy the other team. In fact, the way it usually worked is he'd get on your team and you kind of hover around him and wait to see what he'd do first. And he'd always go for the toughest person on the other team who would be cowering in fear behind the bleachers if they could stay there long enough. And he'd eventually get them when they came out. And then after they came, he did that, then we all kind of got a little bit more courage. And I come out and, I, you know, then we just, there's six girls left in the corner. We get them. <laughs> uh, we need to bring dodgeball back. Don't you agree? I mean, at any rate. He gave us sense. He was... Is in my mind, he was invincible. He was just somebody that couldn't get beat. He could not get hit. People didn't mess with him. People wouldn't even try at a certain point because they knew if they missed him and he got mad because they were trying, it was over for them. And I just remember my anxiety level was completely dependent on whose team I was, if I was on his team or not. And there is a sense in which when you transfer this concept of invincibility, recognize that if you are a child of God, You have God on your side who is truly invincible. That's just a fun story I tell with a little bit of a sense of of the relief you get when you're on the right team. All of us maybe could relate to something like it. But transfer that to the whole of eternity, the whole of life, that God is working an invincible plan according to his purpose and by his power. It will come to pass. And so it is incumbent upon us to ask the question, am I on his team? Not is he on my team, am I on his team? Because that's where I need to be. And if I am on his team, no matter what comes my way, I know that his invincibility will win. And if I am united to him by Christ, then I too win. I too benefit. 
I too gain from what this relationship brings that God has ordained. It's part of his purpose. And when I start to rest in that kind of confidence about who God is, the invincible one, not a wishy-washy one, not one who trips up from time to time, not one who says I will do this and doesn't do it like so many of us. No, the invincible one. This is the God who makes these promises to us that we've been reading in Isaiah and you can read in the scriptures. When he says, fear not, why should I not fear? Because he's invincible. Because his plan is invincible. He will not fail. That's why I don't fear. There's a reason for my not fearing. If I were to pick one verse out of this long section we're looking at, it would be verse 13, which I read. It says, also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, or I do what I do. I exact my plan. I work, and who can turn it back? Obviously, nobody. That's the answer. Your sense about life and eternity should be shaped by this question. Whose side am I on? If you are in Christ by faith, then God is whose team you are on, so to speak. The all-powerful, sovereign, invincible God is on your side. More accurately, this same God of all things has placed you really on his side. I would propose to you what I think is true and underlies all of the message of the prophets for sure. God is working an unstoppable plan for his purposes, which is a benefit for those who are rightly related to him through Christ. This should give every believer a strong sense of assurance about God's care for them, his care for us as his church. And that assurance should then encourage us, empower us to do a great many things that he may ask of us. If we go to the passage Chapter 43, starting back at verse 8, we start to read of his call to all people, but then in particular his people. You'll notice that happens a lot. He wants the whole earth to hear what he's saying to his people. He has specific promises to his people, and he has, you might say, announcements to the people at large, because his plan is always to bring uh, people from every tribe and tongue to himself. And we see his invincibility which is something that is really the believer's friend. Yes, it's, it's awesome. There's something to be feared concerning it. But if you're right in him, the invincibility of God is our friend. By his invincibility, we mean to speak of his being unstoppable. Every created being has its weaknesses, but not God. By invincibility, we mean to speak of his unmatched power to do exactly what he wills. And here is Israel struggling with doubt, struggling with fear, wavering in their commitment, proving very weak by falling into sinful fear and practices. And God calls a court case, a courtroom assembly, as a metaphor for making known his invincibility, faithfulness, trustworthiness, sovereignty, you name it, all of these things concerning him. Verse 8, it says, "...bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears." Remember, in the first verses, he's promising that he will be with them, that they should not fear, that he will help them overcome whatever they go through. Yet there's people still still do not believe. Bring them out. Verse 9. All the nations gather together. Come watch this, nations. And the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and how and show us the former things? Okay, so what has happened formerly? Um, What has God done? Let's see his record. Everybody, let's get together and analyze the facts. Verse 9, continuing. 
Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. Now notice what he says to his people in particular. You are my witnesses. I hope that resonates with you. It's something that is said later in the Bible. We'll come back to it. You are my witnesses, he says to his people, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Uh, He wants his people to be witnesses to who he is, God. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So you, his people, who live in the midst of mass idolatry, widespread false worship and delusion, you be my witnesses that I am God, I am the living God. The people of God, among other things, should be distinct from everyone else. We should not be worshiping the same things everyone else's. So he says, world come together, my people come together, and my people should be witnesses that I am the true and living God and not the stuff that you're worshiping. That's how it's supposed to be. God makes an exclusive claim in this statement over all the other false gods, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Assyria, now Babylon. He is the true and living one. Before him, no god was formed. In other words, the gods they are worshiping were things that were created that came after the God made all things. Verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. This is a difficult passage to take from the Hebrew to put into the English, and I think the ESV does a good job. It gives you pause, doesn't it? I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So he declares himself a savior. He'll declare himself redeemer. He'll declare himself creator. He'll declare himself king. But I am savior, he says. And this is not a statement that is aimed at the Israelites alone. Remember, he has everybody assembled. The passage doesn't say, I am your Lord, just to his people, and besides me there is no savior. It says, I am the Lord. The Lord, meaning the only Lord. One of the most uh, heinous things places that call themselves churches do, is give the world the impression that there are multiple saviors. An assembly that says that needs a savior themselves. And there's only one savior, and God says who it is. It is I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior. God is the only place in which safety can be found. God is the only one who can deliver us. His record is perfect, It was perfect in the time of the Israelites. It was perfect after the time of the Israelites. And it's been perfect in your life. Verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed. See the matter of fact, the invincibility of God. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. You can see what he's driving home. There is only one true and living God. And it's not like we live in a different day where there are not other claims to be God. We can understand why this is so important. When you've been undistracted, he says to his people, you see what is true about me. Here again he declares what we need to know, what we need to remember, and what we need so that we can live according, accordingly. In verse 13, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. It's the central passage in this look at his invincibility. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I work, and who can turn it back? Sovereignty describes God's rule over everything. 
Invincibility describes his momentum, his unstoppable forward motion, his ongoing movement, whereas kings and kingdoms eventually get toppled, God cannot be toppled. I work, and who can turn it back? People sometimes ask the question to trip up Christians. Is there something God could not do? You should have no trouble and no pause in saying there's a lot of things God can't do. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be silenced. God cannot be subdued. God's plans cannot be appended. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. There's lots of things God can't do. God is incapable of being conquered. By God's invincibility, we mean to accent the fact that he is insurmountable. I work, and who can turn it back? A related synonymous term would be he is unyielding. When met by opposition, he does not stop. Invincible suggests that which cannot be overcome or mastered. As I mentioned earlier, invincible is used often to apply in military terms. That which cannot be conquered in combat or war. Something or someone who cannot be overcome or subdued in any manner. Something invisible is victorious over everything. Mere humans who imagine themselves invincible, however, are always shown that they are wrong and they are not. And Scripture is replete with this concept. We talk in terms of his sovereignty, but invincibility, I hope you see, is a sub-theme that's more pointed. Job, maybe the earliest voice recorded in the first person. He probably lived around the time of Abraham. And he says in his words from the Holy Spirit, But he, God, is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Back to the passage before us, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. So, hold on. The Invincible One. He is your Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. These powerful nations that you're so worried about, that you're so in awe concerning, I I will move them around just like we learned last week. He'll use them as pawns for the purposes of his people, which are ultimately in place for his purpose, his invincible purpose, conducted and empowered by his invincible power. He's already declared himself Lord Verse 14 and verse 15, you see him declare himself redeemer, creator, king. We saw his savior. He will raise Babylon and he will reduce Babylon all for his invincible purposes and by his power. And I think at first level, the invincibility of God in studying this, even for a moment, it inspires awe in all of us when we consider what it is. In any time the people of God are inspired by a vision of God, when we're When we have a fear of God, and I mean it in the right sense of fear, not scared of, but rightfully respectful of the power of our God, anytime as people fall under that, that's a good thing. It humbles us, and it renews our interest in Christ. It renews the fact that we must have Christ, the invincible one. We have offended him. We have offended his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. We can fool people, but we can't fool him. So we need Christ because we cannot avoid his justice. The invincible one cannot be stopped. And so I go to Christ, and there I find, there I find my refuge, and there I find my comfort. There I find myself now 
Um, the friend of the invincible one. The invincible one makes me his friend. And so it changes everything about how I look at life. And it humbles me again to hear it. And so I come to him with humility, which causes me to worship him. And that's always a good thing for the people of God. When we, we study his invincibility, it should direct us to worship. It should give us a sense of resolve about who our God is and be so grateful that he has made us his. Henceforth, I am he, God says. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Now, I want you to look as we consider this this very uh, powerful reality of his invincibility, that as he's moving his purposes, you will see that his purposes are not haphazard. They're not kind of as he goes. They're with particular purpose, uh, a perfect purpose, and and they're pointed. There's detail that God is working out. And he won't stop, and he will accomplish it. Look at verse 16. It starts to indicate a bit of this uh, pointedness or intentionality on the part of God and his purposes. Verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Now, he's saying he's invincible or he can't be stopped. And he uses as an example how he had the plan of redemption for Israel through the exodus out of Egypt. And he reminds us all of the, the details that had to be worked out. You know that detail of a sea and the most powerful army on earth and his people unarmed and unequipped? That's a detail. And so what does he do? He parts the sea. He brings that powerful army typified by chariots and horses, the the way to typify the most powerful of all nations at that time, and he closes the sea and lays them down. They can't even raise their, their weapons. He reminds them of how when he has a purpose, when he has a plan, he takes care of the details, and he's pointed in what he does. Verse 18, almost like he's saying, but don't live in the past, because look what he says. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, people, look up and listen. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Okay, these are, these are the things I did in the past, so you can trust me in the future. When I say fear not, I will be with you. Know that I've done this, so remember that. But don't stay focused on what happened then. The glory days for God's people was not the exodus. It's still coming. That's what he's saying. Uh, don't you see what I'm doing now? And they're saying, wait a minute. You just made the north fall to Assyria. You even said Assyria was your arm. And then you're, we barely escaped from Assyria. Now you're telling us Babylon's coming upon us. What work are you talking about? Well, the work of them realizing who they really are and who they must trust. This great work of revival comes from him bringing discipline upon them. So now they have to look. That's the work. Anytime we would look to Christ instead of everything else around us, whenever we would, would get rid of the idols, turn away from the idols and unto God, that's a work of God happening. No matter what it looks like on the outside, nationally, He's calling us to look up and realize his presence and what he's doing. And that's what he says. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Now, I want you to notice verse 21 really carefully here because this is a glimpse into the purpose of God. 
When we recognize his purpose and what he's working things towards, it helps us understand our place in it. And when you understand your place in it, you understand your purpose. And when you understand your purpose, now you have the makings for a joyful life, a life that recognizes what we're called to do. We're not wandering, wondering, what am I doing on this earth? We know when we see. And notice what he says in verse 21. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So he has called you, he has called us for a purpose so that we would declare his praise. That is our purpose. So it's perfect and it's pointed. You see how specific it is. And if you as a child of God try to run against this, he loves you way too much to let you rebel like this because you'll be miserable down the path you're going. And it's funny because you could be doing the same exact thing. Before and after, God makes clear to you that your purpose is for his glory. It's not so much what we do, but why we do it. Verse 21 again, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now let's continue in the passage. You'll see this perfect and pointed purpose of God. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. Even though I did this, these things for you, I have called to you. I have made clear what I promise you. You did not call upon me, Jacob, but you've been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. You haven't worshipped me. You haven't put me first, yet I've done all these things for you, my people, whom I love, he says earlier in the chapter that precedes. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Instead of giving me praise, giving me devotion, you're wearying me. They've forgotten their purpose, and so they drifted from their God. They were living for self and safety rather than for God's glory and purposes. That's why they were so attracted to the gods of the other nations. Ironically, The only real safety that we can find is found in living for God's purposes. Look at verse 25. There's another mention of this. I, just like we read earlier, I, like in verse 11, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I'm the one who saves you. Why? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Why does God save you? For his own sake. You say, wait a minute, I thought this was about me. It hurts a little bit. It's not about you. But here's the security. If it's about you, you're in trouble. I mean, I want you to think about this honestly. For a moment, people, let's think we are a small people in a vast universe. The God of the universe. He doesn't do things for you, for us. He does them for himself. And he saves you for himself. That's security. I want you to think about that. Because God has attached his namesake to what he says he'll do to bring glory to himself. That's where we find security. When we understand our purpose is a token of God's love and glory, then we recognize our place in the universe. It's not all about us. It's about him, and he has made you part of how he displays himself. That's amazing. I mean, that is security. I mean, that's what gives me purpose. That's what helps me through whatever it is I'm going through at any given time. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What a beautiful passage of encouragement to his people of all ages. 
Verse 13 again, though. I work in who can turn it back. Calvin says on this passage, All things must be subject to his authority. To the same purpose is what he says, that no obstacle can prevent what he hath decreed to do, that the Jews may not be alarmed or dispirited by the forces or numbers of their enemies. He tells for comfort. God is working an unstoppable plan for his purposes, which is a benefit to all who are rightly related to him. And this should give all believers a strong sense of assurance about God's care for them, about his care for you, and such assurance will empower us as the people of God to do a great many things that he calls us to. I want you to look at the the last point from the passage. Starting in verse 26 of chapter 43 into the first few verses of chapter 44, it's a continued thought. God's plan and purposes, they're not faceless or impersonal, quite the opposite. God's invincible purpose and power is very personal. Verse 26, he says to us, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. He's giving opportunity, uh, figuratively speaking, for us to interact. Set forth your case. How am I wrong, he's saying. He's saying to us, tell me, how am I wrong? Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Remember, remember our, our first father and if we remain in him, we can see how we have transgressed. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob utter destru- uh, to utter destruction in Israel to reviling. I will discipline you for your association still with your first father, in essence. I'm calling you to myself. I'm calling you to this redemption I provide. God speaks of disciplining his people. Sin is never overlooked, but here is what's so beautiful and connected again here and again and again and again in Scripture. There also comes his grace. We understand his grace as we understand the chasm between our righteousness and his. Verse 1 But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. It reminds me of the passage in the New Testament, maybe the most important passage in the whole of the Bible, in Ephesians 2. He just gets done telling us about our being sons of disobedience, children of wrath, dead in our transgressions and sins, depressing stuff, real stuff. Verse 4 of chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. But now, here, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. It's only used three times, Jeshurun. We think it's a, a word of intimate love for Israel. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. These are Abraham-like promises concerning their descendants. It's not just about their immediate descendants. This prominent metaphor of water in a thirsty land, God promises the pouring out of his Holy Spirit on his people in due time. And you know by connection, we are all children of Abraham, those who are united to God by faith in Christ. This is what it says in Galatians. The true sons and daughters of Abraham trust in Christ. And so in fulfillment of this passage, 
And also in connection to what I told you to think about, verse 10, you are my witnesses, he says to his people, who are failing in this. But now he says he'll pour out his spirit upon us. Jesus, right before he ascended, listen to what he says in Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking earthly. 700 years later, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is an awesome thing to be living in the time of Isaiah, to hear these promises that God will send his Spirit and they will be his faithful witnesses. And the world will know of who God is, the Holy One of Israel, because of the witnesses of his people. But it's far more exciting to live on this side of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwells you and you have been made witnesses so that you can tell Tell the uttermost parts of the world who God is. Verse 4, this picture of what would happen when the Spirit would be poured upon them. Verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. There will be a time where it won't just be relegated to this little portion of the world hemmed in by Egypt on this side, Babylon on this side, and who knows who on the top and who knows who on the bottom. The whole world will have people look to their neighbor and say, I know the Lord, do you know the Lord? Wherever you may be, no matter what nation it's in and no matter what oppression comes, there will be people all over the globe because of the Spirit's outpouring and the growth of God's kingdom by his invincible power who will know Christ and call upon God's name. And God will be glorified. And God will do this thing because he is invincible. God is working an unstoppable plan for his purposes, which is a benefit to all who are rightly related to him. This should give every believer a strong sense of assurance about God's care for them. And such assurance empowers us to do a great many things. I want to close by giving you three ways, three personal ways, in which God's invincibility manifests itself beautifully and wonderfully in your life and in mine. Number one, God's love is invincible. Talking about God is invincible. Now, his love would therefore also be invincible. It says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, and we only love him because he loved us first, those who love God, all things work for good. What does that mean exactly? For those who are called according to his purpose, his invincible purpose. Later, really the culmination of Romans 8 comes here in light of his invincible love to you, his child. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His invincibility translates to his people as conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, all the things that freak you out, I'm sure all these things... Based or against all these things, nor anything else in all creation, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that's the case, what stops us? Who can stop us? If his love is invincible to us, it makes us more than conquerors because none of the things that freak the rest of the world out bother us. Secondly, not only is his love invincible, God's grace is invincible. The theologians like to talk about God's irresistible grace. And I would not take any issue with that. I love the way that is described. But I think another 
descriptor for God's grace would be his invincible grace. Um, he describes his, his grace, his, his choosing people, choosing to show favor to people who really deserve his wrath. That's part of his election, his choosing. And it, because they deserve his wrath, no one could say, God chose me because he saw me as something special. No, we deserve his wrath. And so he says it really plainly in Romans 9 in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He has a purpose for why he chooses a people for himself. So when Paul writes to Timothy, this invincible grace of God comes out. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, Timothy, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now listen to invincible grace. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he saved us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought forth life and immortality to light through the gospel. Invincible grace. This is why Augustine said, well, the grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. The whole work belongs to God. Philip Henry said, We are born with our backs upon God in heaven and our faces upon sin and hell till grace comes and turns us. Thomas Brooks, Saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his lusts as a prisoner is willing to leave his dungeon. Spurgeon said, Sovereign grace can make strangers into sons. Hodge said, The first quickening of the Holy Spirit is to raise spiritually dead person." persons to life. B.B. Warfield, grace is power. It energizes. And what spiritually dead men need is energizing. Such energizing as raises the dead. That's invincible grace. It's typified by what Paul wrote to Titus. And I find it interesting that Timothy's a pastor, Titus is a pastor, and Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is driving home what pastors better be telling people. And he says to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that Isaiah says will come, who he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, invincible Grace. It's the same grace that Paul writes to the Ephesians concerning. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's grace is invincible. God's love is invincible. And it stands to reason, the place that we learn this from, God's word is also invincible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is invincible. There is none who can deliver from his hand. He works who can turn him back. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's his invincible word. Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love to us is invincible. God's grace to us is invincible. 
and his word is invincible. When you understand this, brothers and sisters, when we understand this as a church, that God is working an unstoppable plan for his purposes, we will see that it is a benefit to all who are rightly related to him in Christ. It should give us a sense of assurance, no matter what comes to pass. And it should empower us to do the great many things God will call us to. Let's bow together as I close in prayer. Lord, my prayer is very simple. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen. Let's together respond by singing a very uh, fitting hymn. Pay close attention, as I know you do, but even more so today as we consider uh, this as a response. Stand and sing verse, uh, hymn 75, the first two verses of, O Father, You Are Sovereign.